reflecting the views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is brushing off the growing calls to halt the military offensive in Gaza and vowing to finish the job. A member of his war cabinet has threatened to invade the southern city of Rafah if remaining Israel hostages are not freed by the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Israel's government has not publicly discussed a timeline uh, for the uh, ground offensive on Rafah where more than half the enclave's 2.3 million Palestinians have sought some type of refuge. Comments by retired general and war cabinet member Benny Gantz represent an influential voice, but not the final word on what might lie ahead. The U.N. Security Council is expected to vote Tuesday on an Arab-backed resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, with the United States announcing it will veto Algeria, the Arab representative on the council, put the draft resolution in a final form that can be voted on this weekend. Council diplomats speaking on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak about it publicly said the vote will take place Tuesday morning. In addition to a ceasefire, the final Algerian draft obtained by the AP rejects the forced displacement of Palestinian civilians and demands the immediate release of all hostages taken by Hamas during the surprise October 7th attacks. Dwindling ammunition threatens Ukraine's hold on the 620-mile front line under withering assault by Russian artillery. Its defensive lines are in jeopardy. Ukrainian forces withdrew from one city in the Donetsk region on Saturday after daily Russian onslaughts from three directions to form the last four months. Avdivka was a stronghold for Ukrainian positions deeper inside the country away from Russia. This is VOA News. Australian media say that at least 53 men were massacred in an escalation of tribal violence in Papua New Guinea. A top police official in the country told Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the men were members of a tribe, their allies and mercenaries who were on their way to attack another tribe when they were ambushed. The police official said more victims were expected to be found after the attack Sunday in the nation's remote highlands. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese called the news of the massacre disturbing and said his government was ready to assist, which is Australia's nearest neighbor and the largest single recipient of Australian foreign aid. Tens of thousands of demonstrators marching through cities in Mexico and abroad in what they call a march for democracy. The rally called by Mexico's opposition parties targets the ruling party in advance of June 2nd elections. Demonstrations advocate for free and fair elections and rail against corruption just days after presidential frontrunner Claudia Scheinbaum officially announced her candidacy under the ruling party, Morena. Scheinbaum is largely seen as a continuation candidate of Mexico's highly popular populist president, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador. He's adored by many voters who say he bucked the country's elite parties from power in 2018 and represents the working class. Two people, two police officers, in fact, and a first responder were shot and killed early Sunday, and a third officer was injured at a suburban Minneapolis home in an exchange of gunfire while responding to a call involving an armed man who had barricaded himself with family. Officials say the suspect in the shooting also died. 
It happened in Burnsville and claimed the lives of two 27-year-old officers and a 40-year-old first responder. Seven children were inside that home, but officials say the family was able to leave the home safely. The city of Burnsville said that a police sergeant was hospitalized with what are believed to be non-life-threatening injuries. Celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's Houston megachurch held a past special service Sunday dedicated to healing and thanksgiving a week after a woman opened fire in one of its always before being gunned down by security officers. Osteen's Lakewood Church has not had services since the February 11th shooting that sent worshipers scrambling for safety on Sunday. Osteen's wife, Victoria, members of the church staff who lead Lakewood's Spanish ministry sat in chairs on the stage and spoke about the shooting, how it's impacted Lakewood's community, and how the church has moving forward. Osteen's told parishioners it has been a difficult time with a lot of trauma. You just got to know Lakewood is strong and it keeps stronger, he said. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Welcome to Day Break Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty, Washington. Today is Monday, February 19th. And here are some of the stories we are covering. African leaders conclude summit amid a myriad of military and political crises facing the continent. There's so many crises that is brewing up, but the principal step first is non-interference. The leadership of the union hands are tied. South Africa's main opposition Democratic Alliance unveils its manifesto ahead of this year's general election. We will have an analysis. The disintegration of Zimbabwe's main opposition citizen coalition for change continues. U.S. President Joe Biden will host Kenyan President William Ruto in May. I think this is a very positive signal to Nairobi from Washington that the U.S. values Kenya not only as a regional partner, but an anchor state within the region. And Israel's cabinet rejects the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Those stories plus our Black History Month presentation and Samson O'Malley sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. African leaders concluded the 37th summit of the African Union AU in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on Sunday. The meeting took place as the continent is con confronted with a myriad of military and political crises. AU Commission Chair Musa Faki Mohamed urged the leaders to address the continent's many conflicts and coups. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst. He tells me the AU's policy of non-interference in the internal affairs of member countries presents an inherent contradiction for the body. One of the challenges in the principles of establishment of AU and even the previous body, OAU, the Organization of African Unity, is uh, the principle of non-interference in uh, state, local state politics of member states. So you find that there could be a lot of drama in uh, DRC Congo. There are problems in Senegal with the postponement of elections. There are so many conflicts in Ethiopia, Somali, crisis that is brewing up. But the principal step first is non-interference. And then the regional body, in this case, uh, East African community for the DRC Congo or the Comesa region for, again, DRC, to come into play to first attempt to resolve that problem. 
before it being escalated to the African Union. But again, the leadership of the union's hands are tied. At the start of this current summit in Addis Ababa, the chairperson, Musa Faki Mahamad, was employing the leaders to try to do uh, their best in resolving conflicts on the continent. And how would they do it if they believe in no interference? That's the inherent contradiction uh, in terms of uh, speech and action. So you, you will find this general blanket statement, like I say, cessation of hostility, but when you want to get to tangible action points or tangible things that need to be done within a certain time, so the African Union really can't do much about it. That's the sad nature of it. Unless you find that a decision has been made maybe at the UN Security Council and then African Union has been mandated to take a lead. I want you to talk about Raila Odinga wanting to be the, the new chair of the African Union. What's your view? One is a deserving individual in terms of getting the position. You know, there are few remaining uh, African statesmen of his caliber. So him being nominated truly fills in that role. And I think it is a good candidate for the country, for the region, East African community, and also for the continent itself. Now, in order for Raila to get that job, um, does he have to be nominated or approved by President William Ruto? I'm asking this question, because depending on who you talk to, in, um, some people might think uh, oh, Raila has been a polarizing person, particularly since the last election. So does he need Ruto's approval? The position is uh, you're fronted by the government of the day. It's the Kenyan government, really. Uh, that supports your candidature. So the government of President Ruto has endorsed that decision and it will play its role in fronting Raila, the Kenyan candidate. Yes, historically, he has been polarizing because of the election and campaigns that have been happening. But on this particular note, this is the coming together of the Kenyan leaders, putting aside their parochial national interest and fronting an individual to represent Kenya at a continental level. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst. He was speaking with us from the capital, Nairobi. U.S. President Joe Biden will host Kenyan President William Ruto on May 23rd for a state visit aimed at boosting ties with a key East African ally, the White House said on Friday. Ruto will be the first African leader to receive a state visit at the White House since Biden took office in 2021. The visit comes as the Biden administration tries to focus on Africa as rivals Russia and China seek gains on the continent. Political analyst David Monda tells viewers Douglas Mpuga the invitation is a positive signal to Nairobi from Washington. In terms of Kenya being one of the U.S. allies, I think this is a very positive signal to Nairobi from Washington that the U.S. values Kenya not only as a regional partner, but an anchor state within the region. And remember, this is also commemorating 60 years of very close diplomatic relations between Washington and Nairobi. It should not be lost to us. Former President Obama's a father came to the U.S. in that first initial block of African students in the 60s that uh, John Kennedy brought over. So there's a very interesting sort of history around that. There's the Cold War history of uh, U.S.-Kenya relations.
But I think it's also an important uh, diplomatic visit because the U.S. has really been trying to reinforce its influence in, in East and Central Africa and Africa more broadly because America is not the only game in town. Africa, Kenya, they have a lot of other partners they can work with, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's uh, the European Union, whether it's Turkey. So I think the U.S. in, in terms of this visit is really trying to consolidate its uh, traditional relationship. To what extent do you see this as a broader vision as outlined at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, which emphasized the essential role of African leadership in addressing global priorities? It's important on two levels. On one level that uh, the Biden administration is trying to show that, uh, that Africa matters, particularly now, this is 2024, Biden is really trying to show up a key voting constituency, you know, the African-American community. This visit is important in that light, that it shows that that the U.S. is not only just talking the talk, but also walking that talk of re-engaging with Africa, really a very new way of, of equal partnership. But also, let's not forget, it's reinforcing these broader issues of uh, American foreign policy centered around human rights, democracy, and good governance. And I think Kenya is really seen as one of the models of the continent for progressive constitution, for the rule of law, for one of those countries that at least making an effort to try and, and, and consolidate democracy. What do you think Ruto's role would be given that the East African region has issues say between Somalia and Somaliland and Ethiopia. There is the, the Sudan uh, neighborhood and uh, the Diara Congo and the Rwanda issues. Centrally, President Ruto's role will be really to try and place Kenya as a regional interlocutor that Kenya can actually engage diplomatically, use it a diplomatic infrastructure networks uh, to try and bring peace within the region and ensure that uh, these conflicts do not escalate. That was David Moda, a professor of political science at City University of New York. He spoke from New York City with viewers Douglas Umpuga. In South Africa, the main opposition Democratic Alliance, the DA party, has unveiled its manifesto ahead of this year's general elections. According to the South Africa Mail and Guardian, the DA promised to resolve the country's years-long electricity crisis by privatizing power generation. The DA also promised to create at least 2 million new jobs if it wins the 2024 elections. Professor Sipo Sipi is a political analyst and former deputy vice chancellor for institutional development, institutional support at the University of Zululand. He tells me that while the DA may not be able to defeat the African National Congress, ANC, it has a record of efficient delivery of services to the only city under its control, Cape Town. The advantage of uh, opposition is that they cannot be tested until they're in power. But what is known about the ANC is that uh, the problem of electricity is largely political, is not technical. And many people that uh, could solve the problem have unfortunately been tarnished by suggestions that they are corrupt. So what the DA is saying is that once it takes over, if it does, it will be able to bring people who are competent into anything that the ANC has failed on. And the DA can also say that because uh, where it governs, it has done a better job, the ANC. 
when the ANC took over in 1994, the ANC was in control of the major metros and all the provinces. And once it lost one city, the city of Cape Town, it was never able to regain. And the DA was able to use the city and use its experience and its performance to say where we govern, we do it better. So using the notion that it can do better than the ANC, its message appears credible. So, Professor, let's take the promise to solve South Africa's unemployment problem, which is uh, very high. The Democratic Alliance is promising 2 million new jobs if it wins the election. Is this reasonable? Well, it is not impossible. Uh, One must understand that uh, when you have load shedding, you are effectively destroying jobs. When you have corruption, you're also making it difficult for anyone to invest in your country. And more investment means you're going to get more companies coming to invest in your country and the creation of jobs. And what the DA says is to check our records and see where we could be accused of corruption. And at the moment, they have not been accused of corruption. And where their members have been found to be wanting, the DA has been very quick to, to expel them. So in other words, if you deal with the notion of getting the right people who are skilled, who are competent, you deal with corruption, you address uh, the issue of load shedding, then there's a possibility that you may be able to create all those jobs. Of course, in order to implement the Democratic Alliance's uh, promises, they must win the election. And we know that uh, the Democratic Alliance, perhaps because of its past affiliation with the old South African system, has had trouble uh, winning national elections. So what do you see as their chances for the 2024 election? Well, they, they will not win outright. The ANC will still have a majority, but it will not be a majority that gives an outright 51%. If the ANC gets less than 50%, and especially if it can go down to closer to 40 it is very possible that the, the Democratic Alliance and other parties can find common cause to say we need to get rid of the ANC. And that is a language that the Democratic Alliance may find other partners who may have done well and they form a government. And once they do that, the ANC will be out. And I think the appetite to join forces to remove the ANC will be far greater once the elections indicate that the ANC can be defeated. Professor Sipo Sipi is a political analyst and a former deputy vice chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. He was speaking with us from Johannesburg. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Botti in Washington. Today is Monday, February 19. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, our Black History Month and Samson O'Malley Sports. The disintegration of Zimbabwe's main opposition citizens coalition for change, also known as Triple C, continues. This, after the party's president, Nelson Chamisa, resigned earlier this month, accusing the ruling ZANU-PF of infiltration. 
Over the weekend, one faction of the Triple C named Westmar Mbe as its leader. Tendai Ruby Mbufana is a Zimbabwe social justice advocate and writer. He tells me that Zimbabwe opposition politics centers around personalities, not policy, and the new Triple C is likely to suffer the same fit as its predecessor, MDC Alliance. Apparently now, after the abrupt resignation of Nelson Chamisa, there appears to be quite a number of factions that are coming up. We have the usual faction that was being led by the self-imposed Secretary General, Sengezo Shabangu. Then now there's another one that is supposedly being led by Chamisa's former spokesperson, Promise Mkwananzi. And then there's this other one now that is claiming to be the original CCC, Triple C. They're claiming that the Triple C was not truly a new party, but it was birthed out of the MDC alliance. Now, with the abrupt departure of uh, Chamisa, there are those like Tendai Biti and Welsh Benue who are saying, no, the only reason we became the Triple C was because of this Supreme Court ruling which gave the party name to Tokozani Kupe, but Triple C is effectively the MDC alliance. So now that Chamisa is gone, Tendai Biti, Welsh Benue now become the acting presidents and the each will serve 30 days, then the other one comes in 30 days until there is an elective Congress. We don't know when that Congress will be. It has not been discussed. It has not been announced. What do you suspect is the future of this opposition as it tried to find itself again? Yeah, to be honest, um, with the way our politics is uh, organized in Zimbabwe, especially opposition politics, because the dynamics are very complicated, our opposition politics in Zimbabwe revolves around a personality, a person. It's personality politics. It's not about ideologies. It's not about policies. It's not about what you represent and what your plans are, your manifesto is. It's about an individual. We saw that even during the time of Morgan Changirai. It was about the person, Changirai. But he had amazing, he had phenomenal, tremendous support on the ground. So it's the same with Chamisa. We don't know his programs. We don't know his politics, but he is followed. He has a massive following. So what is going to happen is that his followers, the millions of so followers, are just waiting to hear what he has to announce next. They are not going to follow Tendai BT, they are not going to follow Welshman Mue. So in a nutshell, the Triple C is dead. It will just say, face the same fate as the MDC Alliance, the MDCT, whatever you can call it. Now it's just a party in name only. Tendai Ruby Bofana is a Zimbabwe social justice advocate and writer. He was speaking with us from the capital, Horare. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with athletics. Ethiopia's Derisa Geleta ran a world-leading course record of 2 hours, 3 minutes, 27 seconds to move into the top 20 on the men's world marathon all-time list while his compatriot Asmera Gebro won the women's race in 2 hours, 22 minutes, 13 seconds at the Zurich Marathon de Sevilla, a world athletics liberal road race on Sunday. Record-breaking was the theme of the day with eight national 
former records set as athletes chased qualification times for the Olympic Games in Paris in August. A total of 12 men dipped under 2 hours 8 minutes and 14 women went sub 2 hours 25 minutes in the race. Staying with athletics, Botswana's Lisile Tibogo stomped to award 300 meters best of 30.69 seconds at the Simbini Kuro Classic shootout in Pretoria, South Africa on Saturday. With that performance, the 20-year-old takes more than a tenth of a second of the previous war best of 30.81 seconds set by Wade Van Niekerk in Ostrava, Czech Republic on the 28th of June 2017. Prior to that, the war best stood to Michael Johnson with 30.85 seconds he clocked in 2000, also in Pretoria. In cycling news, the 16th edition of the Tour de Rwanda got underway on Sunday, February 18th and ends on February 25th with four-time Tour de France winner Chris Frome once again in the spotlight. After discovering the roads of the lands of a thousand hills in 2023, Frome is back this year to aim for a final victory. Seven other riders who have also had the honor of competing in the world's greatest race will be taking part in this random week which confirms that the Tour de Rwanda has become a benchmark not only on the African continent but also on a global scale. A total of 195 riders from 19 teams across the world who start a journey of a week race of the Tour de Rwanda. The race is one of Africa's most celebrated cycling events. In football news, the Confederation of African Football has imposed sanctions on the football federations of Mali and Senegal as well as two players from the countries for misconduct during the African 2023 Africa Cup of Nations which ended on the 11th of February. The Federation Malian de Football was charged with misconduct following on sporting behavior of the player Hamari Taure, who was suspended for four matches in two of which are suspended for a period of one year. The Federation Malian de Football was also fined 10,000 US dollars. Senegalese player Kripin Diata was charged with bringing CAF into disrepute following comments made after the round of 16 match between Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire and was suspended for four matches, two of which are suspended for a period of one year. He was also fined 10,000 US dollars. And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a great Monday. It's time now for our Black History Month and African History Fact for today, February 19. On this day, 1942, the Tuskegee Airmen, the black servicemen of the U.S. Air Force, was created at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. During World War II, blacks were not allowed to learn to fly fighter planes because some believed they lacked intelligence, skills, and patriotism. But a young black student at Howard University sued the U.S. government to begin training black pilots at black schools. And so, a flight school was started at Tuskegee. It's quite of black pilots from there fought in World War II and received honors for their bravery. Also on this day, 1919, the Pan-African Congress, organized by W.E.B. Du Bois, met in Paris. There were 57 delegates, 16 from the United States and 14 from Africa. Belis Diane of Senegal was elected president and Du Bois was named secretary. On this day in 2002, Vonetta Flowers became the first black gold medalist in the history of the winter.
Winter Olympic Games. She was also the first American woman to win a gold medal in bobsled. Vanetta, the brick person, and her partner Jill Barkin won the gold medal in the 2002 Winter Olympics in Park City, Utah. Also on this day, 1940, soul singer William Smokey Robinson was born in Detroit, Michigan. Robinson's first singing group was The Miracles, which he formed in 1955 while still in high school. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 19th. And that's it for this Monday, February 19th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing that you... We'll have a great week.